Please now turn in your Bibles to the prophecy of Zechariah as we continue to work our way through this book. We come to the vision of the golden lampstand in chapter 4 of Zechariah. If for some reason you were providentially hindered from being here this last Lord's Day, we looked at the vision in chapter 3 of the priest with the filthy clothes. And if I could get on my knees and beg you to listen to it, I would, because I think the text is so important. If you are lost and you do not know Christ, I urge you to go and listen. If you are a member of this congregation, I urge you to pick it up. This is one of the high points of revelation in the Old Testament, and so I urge you to go there. And if you are struggling with assurance of faith, then this text also is for you. So I encourage you to go back and pick up the third chapter. But now we come to this vision in the fourth chapter. Let me remind you that this 6th century B.C. prophet is prophesying at the time when after Babylonian captivity, numbers of Jews return to Jerusalem, and there Jerusalem is in rubbles, and the temple is completely in rubbles. And that temple, of course, is the center of, of the hope of the coming Messiah. It points to him, and it points to also the new covenant, and it points to the people of God, the living temple being put together by our sovereign, even in the day and age in which we live. And so that temple must be rebuilt, and he is prophesying along with Haggai, and he, in the first six verses of the first chapter, calls the people of God to repentance, and then follow these wonderful night visions, sometimes difficult to understand, that give hope to the people of God and encourage them in the task to which they are being called to rebuild that temple that was fallen. And so we come to this vision of the golden lampstand in chapter 4. Will you bow with me in prayer? O Lord our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. We glory in the wonder of the gospel of sovereign free grace, and we are thankful that as Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus, we are called to serve the Lord with gladness and to fill our lives with worship and praise and also to roll up our sleeves and to work for the kingdom, knowing that it's not us, but it's the Lord himself who blesses that work to which we have been called. And so, Father, just as we see the believers in this day and age, in this section of Zechariah, had a calling, we also, in this world in which we live as Christians, have a calling, various callings, but we have a calling as a church, we have callings as individual Christians. Help us to live our lives for the glory of God. And may we be spurred on to faith and repentance and obedience by what we see in this text this morning. And these things we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand with your copy of God's Word. And by the way, I must say that you'll get so much more out of this if you'll keep the Bible open before you and follow along in the text, because the authority is in the text. It's in the Bible. So we come to this fourth chapter of Zechariah, the word of the Lord. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? 
I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. In a sermon that has greatly influenced me over the years by Charles Haddon Spurgeon that he preached on Romans 15, verse 13, he tells the story of a cold winter's day looking down into the valley and seeing the tops of the cottages. And from the roof of one cottage, the snow has nearly disappeared, and from another cottage, the snow and the ice have remained. What made the difference? The difference was made by the fire burning within. The fire burning within some cottages had virtually melted all of the ice and the snow, but there were others in which no fire was burning and the ice and the snow on top remained. Spurgeon then applied this to the life of the church. He said, one church has a roof coated with worldliness and formalism, and there is no love, warmth inside. The divine love of the Spirit of God, that would melt away the coldness and the ice. And then he added, you cannot get out of the church what is not in it. People of God, it requires the warmth and the power of the Holy Spirit working in the midst of this congregation, in the midst of the church, for the coldness and the ice on the roof to melt away and to make us to be the people of God that we should be? Do we as a church see the necessity of the Spirit's work within our hearts? Do you, professing Christians, see the necessity of the Spirit's work in your life? Do you depend upon the Holy Spirit for the mortification of sin, for godly living, for ongoing conversions, for evangelism, for your home life? How we need to remember the necessity of the Spirit's work in our lives. And so the text addresses 
This, this sense of slow progress in the kingdom of God, it calls away from discouragement. It reminds us that God's kingdom is in his hands and that the Holy Spirit of God empowers the weak and the weary. The chapter, in other words, <clears throat> is completely calculated to warm the church within and melt the ice that encumbers our, our uselessness and to make us warm and loving and caring and powerful in his power for service in the kingdom. The text then reminds us never to minimize the role of the Holy Spirit, to apply the work of Christ to our lives and to make us fruitful believers in Jesus Christ, no matter our circumstances. And so do you ever feel stretched? Do you sometimes feel weary? Do you sometimes feel depressed? Are you sometimes, it seems to you, making just such little progress in the Christian life? Do you know the reviving of God's Spirit in the heart? Well, that's the reason that this text was given long ago to the people of God, and it still speaks freshly and powerfully to us today. So the first thing that we see as we come to this text is the symbolism, the symbolism of the text. That's first, the symbolism of the text we have a candlestick of gold with a bowl on top. Now, when you think of the candlestick, think of the menorah so that you have the, the centerpiece and, the, and the, the three on each side that come from the centerpiece, six on the side, you have seven, the menorah. The candlestick of gold with a bowl that has been put on top, having seven lamps, each lamp with seven feeding tubes, 49 total, that give oil perpetually. And the two olive trees beside the candlestick are pouring this constant supply of oil into the candelabra. In addition, we have the text mentioning two anointed ones, literally translated, it would be sons of oil. You have two sons of oil. And the prophet inquires the meaning of this in verses 4 and 5. Now, those are the symbols. The second thing, then, is to interpret the symbols. So let's explain the symbolism. That's the second point, explaining the symbolism. Comparing Scripture with Scripture enables us to see clearly the broad lines. The lamp represents the church in her Old Testament form. In the holy place, the seven lamps were lit every evening and burned through the night, light shining in a dark place, Christ the light of the world. In Revelation 1.20, we find that the lampstands represent the seven congregations, the seven churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation. This symbolism in Revelation is borrowed, I think, from what we read here in Zechariah, so that what we have in Revelation in, helps us to interpret what we find here in Zechariah. Oil, of course, commonly represents the Holy Spirit. And as it is associated with the anointing power of the Holy Spirit, it clearly means here the Holy Spirit as the source of grace, the Holy Spirit as the, as the empowerment of the people of God, the source of power. And the church radiates grace only because of her source of grace the light that should shine through Christians and shine through the church, the source and the power of it is the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is our perpetual source of grace and of power to live the Christian life 
and to be what we are called to be even as a local congregation today. The two anointed ones that are mentioned in verse 14, the two sons of oil, is not explained, but the context, I think, should make it plain to us that they are Joshua the high priest, of whom we saw in chapter 3 last week, Joshua the high priest of the people of God, who was a priest that pointed to the one who would come that would be our great priest, and Zerubbabel, who was the governor the civic head of the people of God at this point in history. And so, in essence, we have the two offices, the priestly office and the governmental office or kingly office are represented by the two anointed ones in the passage. So I don't think the symbolism is that difficult for us to understand, but now let's get to the meaning. This is third, the meaning of the vision, and it would help us to read verses 4 through 7 again. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you, not, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And so in verse 7, he speaks of the mountain. Of course, he's speaking of the opposition against the rebuilding of the temple, the opposition that is there in front of Zerubbabel as governor that seems this great mountain that needs to be overcome if ever this temple is to be rebuilt. A mountain, he says, will be leveled. The eyes of the Lord are on his project with favor, verse 10. Also, you remember in chapter 3, verse 9, the seven eyes of the Lord, the omniscience of God. God's perfect omniscient watchfulness and care over his people, over God's own plan for his people, over what he has for his people, over the project of the rebuilding of the temple. And the Lord sees to it that you're going to finish this temple I'm calling you to rebuild, because ultimately it's not through you. I'm using you as a means. I don't have to do that, but in my grace I'm using you for the rebuilding of this temple. It's going to happen, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. He will see to it that all opposition is overcome. And so all obstacles will be removed. All enemies, no matter who they are, will be overcome and hindrances to the kingdom will be leveled. Again, verse 6, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. All the obstacles will be removed. Zerubbabel has few visible resources. They've just returned. They, they have little in the way of resources. Everything seems to be against him. There's opposition there are those who don't want to get up and do the job. The obstacles seem like, like mountains to Governor Zerubbabel and also to the people of God. And just as the Lord declared regarding the ministry of John the Baptist, so also he says here, just as he said to John the Baptist in lengthier words, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. 
So the obstacles before you, Zerubbabel, and before you, people of God, they look really big. They look like great and grand mountains, maybe like Mount Blanc, maybe like the Swiss Alps, but they're going to look like the cornfields of Illinois. They're going to be brought down. And God himself will get the glory, for he says in verse 9, his hand shall also complete it, then you will know that the Lord of hosts, there's that Yahweh Savaot again, used 53 times in the book of Zechariah, Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, with all of my power, with all of my might behind it, you will know that it is the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So, it will happen just as God has promised it would happen. The Lord's rebuke comes to those who despise the church in her feebleness, in her, in her uh, ill-equipped state, in her lack of resources. But he says in verse 10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So upon those who will not see beyond the moment, who cannot envision a temple that's rebuilt, uh, who just cannot see how, how anything good can come of all these rocks and stones that have to be gone through and, and, and redone and, and new quarries and all that has to be done, and they can't see beyond the moment. Well, what he's saying to us here is that you are not to judge the Lord by feeble sense, as we sometimes sing. What he is saying to them, and he is saying to us in our day as well, is that God's work does not depend upon human strength. It does not depend upon human resourcefulness. That all was being done for the kingdom seems so very small. Yes, but to God, small things done for him are glorious. And the principle is clear. People of God, he was saying to them, and he says to us here now, do not judge God's work by man's standard. Do not judge by what you see, for we walk by faith and not by sight. See it all through the eyes of faith, through what God has said, he has decreed, and he is going to bring about all the way to the time of the return of Jesus Christ. And so the day is going to come, he says to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, he says to the people of God through Zechariah, the day will come when this temple now in ruins will be built, and at its conclusion, the top stone will be placed, the very last stone will be placed, and the people of God will stand back and they will say, grace, grace, unto it. And in verse 10, the second part, God's eye is upon them. God's eye is upon his church now. The all-seeing eye of Jehovah that speaks of, as T.V. Moore put it, put it, it speaks of the sleepless regard which he bestows on his church. That's a great phrase, isn't it? The sleepless regard that he bestows on his church. And what is true for them then is true for us now, and our God has not changed. And what is true for the congregation as a whole is true for you also, individually believer in Christ. 
that God has this sleepless regard that he bestows on you in your Christian life, even when you can't see it. He sees you. His eye is upon you. His guidance is there for you. His love never fails. So the true church is always under the providential care of God in communist countries where they're meeting in little places and hiding so that they may have worship and other places in the world in which they may be persecuted, whatever it may be. Again, do not judge the Lord by feeble sense. God is achieving his purpose. He's accomplishing it. He is going to build his church. So can you not see that this applies to the success of the gospel today? To the spread of the kingdom of God today? I mean, the temple was but a type, a shadow that pointed ahead. Yes, those inner workings that pointed to all that atonement meant. But the building of the the blocks and stones into the building that Peter and others say to us today is the church. We are the temple of God. We are indwelt by his spirit. So can you not see that this, this applies to the preaching of the gospel here and the preaching of the gospel on foreign fields and the preaching of the gospel in, in other, other parts of the world and to genuine revival and to your heart's needs today, whatever they may be. Is not God's eye upon us? Is not God's eye upon you now? Is there ever a time in which your Lord who died for you does not care for you and the triune God who determined to save you does not watch over you? Will he not bless the church in her witness now? Is it ever right to judge God's kingdom by human standards? The obstacles seem great though, don't they? There's the total depravity of man, the genuine sinfulness of our hearts. There are governments that oppose the church. There are temptations and failings and sins, and we can be depressed and we can be overwhelmed, but I want you to look with me at the text and be encouraged, and here find, and this is the fourth thing, here find three principles that assure the success of the gospel today. Three principles that assure the success of God's kingdom today. Now, the success of the gospel in the context here in Zechariah meant the rebuilding of the temple, the revival of the messianic hope. That was their great need so that the promise of the Messiah to come, that would be where their hearts were drawn, enabling the people of God to look forward to his coming in hope. Our context is different, but our need is the same. Our concerns for the success of the gospel are the same. Our concern that the kingdom of God be upbuilt, those concerns are the same. And God is building the temple of his church just as surely as he in his power and might saw to it that that temple of stones was built in that day and time. And he uses us to worship his name. And he uses us to call the nations to believe in Christ. And so I'm going to give you these three principles. Applicable then, applicable certainly, widely applicable to the upbuilding of the kingdom of God now. And the first principle is this. The success of the, co- of the gospel, the success of the kingdom of God is directed by Christ, who is the head and king of the church. 
And I'm taking this, of course, from uh, the interpretation of verse 14 that I mentioned. Then he said, these are the two sons of oil, the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now remember that anointing was done with oil, and the two who would have been anointed here would have been Joshua the high priest and would have been Zerubbabel the governor representing the kingly office. And so the success of the gospel is directed by Christ because Zerubbabel points to the kingly office of Christ, and Joshua here in this text points to the priestly office of Christ. It is Christ who is over it all. So Joshua, the high priest of his people, he pointed to the greater Joshua, the high priest of his people. Christ, our great high priest, the one who died for us, who satisfied the judgment of God against us, who paid the penalty of our sins for us, who rose from the dead, who ascended on high, who even right this moment is interceding for every believer who is here right now. His blood is the labor for the cleansing of our sins. He is the intercessor who efficaciously pleads his merit, for we have none of our own, the merit of his blood before his Father, and who has promised through that merit to bring his people all the way to our heavenly home. And then there's Zerubbabel, again, the civic head, hence the governmental or kingly office. Well, Christ is our king. Zerubbabel was a faint representative just pointing ahead to the one who is the king and head of the church. The government, we are told in Isaiah 9, is on his shoulders. He rules. He reigns. He is sovereign over all people, all nations, all political leaders, all circumstances, all situations. He is sovereign to bring judgment. He is sovereign to bring salvation. Someone has said, as priest, he expiates sin. As king, he extirpates sin. As priest, he purchases salvation. As king, he keeps his purchase. That's what's being pointed to, the success of the king-priest, the priest-king, Jesus Christ. So what Zerubbabel has begun in building the earthly temple will be completed in a greater and more glorious manner than the true, by the true Zerubbabel, the Messiah, the builder of his church, who tells us in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, that he does all things for the sake of his church. Let me remind you that in ultimate terms, the world belongs for the sake of the church as God's elect are called out of the world and incorporated into the temple of living stones. This cannot fail. He is the governor of his people. He is the priest of his people. It cannot fail. And then there's another principle, the second principle. The success of the gospel is assured because God sovereignly is in the small things, the things that seem to be so, for which we're so ill-equipped, the things that seem to be so insignificant to us. God is in those things. And so he tells us in verse 10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The small things in your life. 
my growth seems so small. My growth as a Christian seems so imperceptibly small. My progress so little. Yes, but God says in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Small things in the church. The small beginning in the temple building was a forerunner of someone and something much greater, Christ to come, the church to be built, and the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. And so you say, well, pastor, look at the church in our country. Did you see this recent Ligonier survey? I think they do it every year, telling us what evangelicals are believing. I'll address it perhaps at another time, but that's not encouraging, let me tell you. It's simply not encouraging. We're accommodating the world. We are we're forgetting basic Christian theology. It's sad to see. So you say, look at the church. I look at the church and I see these things too. You look at the country, you say, once influenced so greatly by Christian principles and look at us now and you say, all I can do is pray. The progress is so small. What do you mean all you can do is pray? Yes, your little weak, frail prayers are big things to the ears of the Almighty God, your Heavenly Father, your infinite Lord. What can I do? You can be earnest before the throne of grace and pray that the oil will flow. You can trust that Christ is present with us, who said that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age, who said, I will build my church. You can trust him for that. You can believe him for that. And let this inspire you to service as it inspired the great missionary movement from about 1790 to the mid-19th century. And what went before that great missionary movement? Well, it was purposeful prayer on the part of Jonathan Edwards and other ministers in Scotland as they joined together in this prayer band and a host of others who prayed Evangelical Calvinists were in the forefront of this because Calvinists actually believe that God is God and he can and does work in his world, that his hands are not tied by man's folly, that he never wrings his hand while he sits upon the throne wondering what to do, that he has an overarching decree and he will fulfill what he has decreed and it is infallible, it must come to pass. And what our prayers are, or our hearts becoming one with God's heart, Lord, do thy will. We long to see thy will done in this world. And then there are these other small things. You know, there's the changing of the diapers at 2 a.m. And you say, well, that's not so small. It might not be if you don't change the diaper. But, <laughs> but the daily things, the routine, you know, the, 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 the mundane the, the, just the things that have to be done, they can be done too to the glory of God, you know. And those small things are big in God's sight. He sees you moms when you show uh, love and discipline to your children. You dads when you, when you show leadership for your family. And you young people and children when you obey or disobey your parents. He cares about all of these things down to the details. And so... The success of the gospel in our lives, the success of the gospel in the world is because 
God is sovereignly in the small things of life. Things that seem small to us are cumulatively used in his good pleasure and providence to bring about this huge, wonderful plan that he has of the salvation of his people and bringing all of this to bear upon the completion of his church at the end of the age. It's all part of it. Nothing accepted. But then this leads to a third principle. The third principle is the success of the gospel depends upon the power of the Holy Spirit. The success of the gospel depends upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Zechariah 4 is about the power of the Holy Spirit. The ascended Christ poured out his spirit upon the church in the new covenant in Acts chapter 2, and now he is building this temple of living stones. And the mountains or obstacles seem so big to us, but they're all going to be leveled. Our own sin, thank God, God is going to remove our stubbornness, the persecution of the church, the hatred of the gospel. Nothing will keep the sovereign God from accomplishing his purpose. John Owen, the great English Puritan theologian, volume 2, page 238. So you can go and read it for yourselves. Said this, Sometimes the heavens seem black over the saints, and the earth trembles under them. Public personal calamities and distresses appear so full of horror and darkness that they are ready to faint with the apprehensions of them. Hence is their great relief and their retrievement of their spirits. Their consolation or trouble depends not on any outward condition or inward frame of their own hearts, but on the powerful and effectual workings of the Holy Ghost, which by faith they give themselves up unto. Your consolation depends on the powerful and effectual working of the Holy Spirit, which by faith you give your heart up to. And therefore, the wonder-working power of the Holy Spirit in the converting of sinners. Say, someone here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you're thinking, what are these Christians all about? What is this preaching here all about? Why are these people singing these, these, these what they consider great hymns of the faith? You don't see anything in them. I have no interest in any of these things. Let me tell you one thing maybe somebody is saying. I'll never become one of them. I'll never be a Christian. Ah, you think so? If God intends to save you, you will not be able to stop him. That's what the Bible teaches. He saves lost sinners. I hated the gospel. I hated his truth. I hated the Lord. I wanted to go my own way. When as a boy of 13, he arrested me and showed me, he shook me over hell. He showed me I was a sinner and I needed a redeemer. And he opened my heart and the Holy Spirit drew me. Draw me, says the spouse in the Song of Solomon, and I will run after thee. Well, that's what happened. 
He drew me, and I followed on, charmed to confess His grace divine. Well, the top stone is going to be laid. Look at verse 7. You, who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain? Okay, all the obstacles removed, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Now again, temple imagery. Yes, it, it had fulfillment when the temple in Jerusalem was built, but the temple there points to the temple of Christ's church now and in New Testament terms applied to the church as God's building, we are awaiting the top stone. What does that mean? The finality of the building of the temple, of course. The final one that is going to be converted by the sovereign grace of God, of course. It means the Holy Spirit will call all of God's elect, fitting us together as God's temple, and the top stone will be laid as God's people cry, grace, grace to it. Can you imagine the temple in that day? The temple is built. The top stone is there. Oh, of course, the temple was not what it had been in its former glory, and, but, but nonetheless, the Lord had done this work, and a greater work is being pointed to that would be done, and that top stone is put there, and they said, grace, grace to it, and God is saying to us, the temple of the church is being built, the Word of God is being proclaimed, you yourself are sharing your faith with others, people are hearing the gospel, the seed is being planted, Some else, someone else may water, God is going to give the increase, people are going to come to faith in Christ, and one day it will be the last of the people of God to be converted, and Jesus will come again, and when that top stone is laid, and we see in that day the finality of that great temple that God has been built, that multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, nation, kindred on earth. What, what are we going to say? Or are we going to say, boy, we did great work? Boy, I really did it? No, you're going to say, this only, only could have been by God's grace. You will say, grace, grace to it on that day. That's what he's saying to us. We will be singing, Dear dying Lamb, thy precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. So you know, true evangelism brings men to an understanding and appreciation of the majesty of God and the glory of God. And if it does not, it's not true evangelism. The top will be laid, not by the church as political broker. The, the church... The church will be built not by cleverness, not by newfangledness, not by sword. The church is being built by oil, by the pouring of the oil, the Spirit of God, the power of God into the ordinary means that God has established for the upbuilding of His church, the Holy Spirit, divine power. Now, having said that, I want to say this. The success of the gospel periodically in history is accelerated by the Holy Spirit producing what sometimes we call revival. Now, now the word needs to be defined. But God advancing ordinary means, such as he did in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, if that was not a revival, I don't know what to call it. It was a reformation, but it also was a revival. So would we see the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our midst? I believe we do in this congregation. Would you see more? Would you pray for it in the church? 
in this country? Would we live consistently for that desire for revival in our churches, in our land? Then let us bow in reverence and in awe, asking for cleansing, repenting of our sins, living in fellowship with Him, depending upon His omnipotence, relying on His promises, believing Him, His love, His inspired Word, bringing all things under the subjection of this Word that He has given to us. Do you know J.I. Packer's definition of revival? Packer defines revival this, in this way. Revival is the visitation of God which brings to life Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. Remember how Isaiah prophesies and says, wake up, wake up, you sleeping people. Well, revival is the visitation of God which brings to life Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. If the church in America and in the West does not need this, I don't know that I'm just at a loss. Revival is not, we're not Arminians here, folks. Revival is not some red sign out the door inviting people to a spring revival as if we can produce it. Revival is something that God sends, not something we work up. And revival comes down when the Spirit of God works deep faith and repentance and vitality into the hearts of flagging people of God. Is it not right to pray for this? And to pray that we can live constantly in that sense of renewedness that comes through the powerful work of the Spirit of God if we but have faith and trust Him. Now, I want that work of the Holy Spirit. Do you? Do you? Is anything more needed today than the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on our lives and on His church today? Is it not true that needed today is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit only who can bring the dead to life, who can make our prayers real prayer, who can make His Word fruitful? What should we do? We see this need in our country. The churches, the stones are fallen all around us. What do we need to come before the Lord and pray? How should we pray is maybe the question we should ask. Well, keep your finger in Zechariah and turn to Luke 11. And I will not make many a comment on this. I think it will be so obvious how the Lord Jesus teaches His disciples to pray in Luke 11, beginning with verse 5. Luke 11, beginning with verse 5, And He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. 
And I tell you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So why are we not on our knees saying, Lord, the church, yes, I, in various ways, you spell it out, but the church, the church needs the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. The professing church in our time and day needs this work. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, The strength of a church may pretty accurately be gauged by her prayerfulness. So we pray, Lord, pour the oil of the Spirit into our candlestick and make us shine brightly. That's how we should pray. You know, Jonathan Edwards, when he wrote on the marks of the Spirit of God, made the comment, these fruits do not grow in Arminian ground. What he meant by that, of course, it does not grow out of pride self-reliance, false theology, but out of a theology that humbles us, out of a theology of sovereign grace. And then in a narrative of surprising conversions, as the Holy Spirit was doing remarkable things in his own congregation, Edwards said the converts, I'm quoting, manifested a longing to lie low and in the dust before God, with all complaining of their not being able to lie low enough. To put it the other way around, we are saying, Lord, we desire to exalt you fully. We want our God to receive all the glory and honor for who he is and for the salvation that he brings. Arnold Dallimore, in his great two volumes on George Whitfield, and I everybody should read them, but especially every minister. When Dalimore is introducing Whitfield in the beginning of, the, of his first volume, he asks, is that kind of revival, God's Holy Spirit working, is that possible today? And what kind of men will he use? And when I read this, I underlined every word in pencil. Don't use pens in your books, use pencil. Men mighty in the Scriptures. Who's he going to use? Men mighty in the Scriptures, their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness, the majesty, and holiness of God, and their minds and hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. They will be men who have learned what it is to die to self, to human aims and personal ambitions. Men who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake, who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will labor and suffer, and whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth's accolades, but to win the master's approbation when they appear before his awesome judgment seat. They will be men who will preach with broken hearts and tear-filled eyes, and upon whose ministries God will grant an extraordinary effusion of the Holy Spirit, and who will witness signs and wonders following in the transformation of multitudes of human lives. And maybe it's in a ministry 
in which only a few are converted, but he's a faithful man, and those few are part of that great multitude that God will convert. Maybe he's in a place where no one is converted, but he's a faithful man, but God still receives all the glory. I was reading this book when Vicki and I married almost 48 years ago, and I still read this book. So we say, oh, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see that God is our end. Send missionaries for the sake of the gospel. Mortify sin us for, for thy sake. Since the Father's goal is to glorify the Son and the Holy Spirit is given to exalt Christ. Help our heart's goal to be that of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, to exalt Christ in all things. And Spurgeon again was right when he said, it is well to be weak in self and better still to be nothing. It is well to be weak in self and better still to be nothing. We must be a living church, a living church for a living work. And whether by the ordinary, everyday, never-to-be-despised, slow, steady, methodical, or through those same means, an acceleration of the ordinary means of grace, it will not be by might, not by the collection of, 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 of men's abilities. It will not be by power, as if any individual could bring such a thing about. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. So the Lord will bring all into the last of the elect unto himself. He will show the enormity of their sin. He will show them their rebellion. He will regenerate their hearts. He will convert their souls and bring them to himself. And all will happen not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God, says Yahweh Savaot, the Lord of armies. And the top stone will be placed on the temple of God's church that he is building. And we are living stones, and our cry shall be grace, grace unto it. Because it is all of grace from first to last, people of God. It is all of grace from first to last. Amen. Amen.